0: Well, let's uh, come together, and we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity we have again to look into the Word of God. Uh, bless our friends, and we pray that each one of us will have the right attitude and the right uh, desire as we look into the Word of God to be obedient and submissive, and we pray that our lives will glorify Christ, for we ask in His name. Amen. Well, I did remember the quiz this time. I was thinking about that this afternoon, so I remember so let me ask you these quiz questions, see how you do here. Because you know this could determine your Christmas gift, you know, and so you wanna you wanna do you wanna do well on this quiz, right? I always get cold anyway, so Oh, okay. What <laughs> number one, the phrase mutilators of the flesh, this is chapter three, verse two, is a play on the concept of circumcision. True. True. Yeah. Remember these Judaizers who insisted that Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law, Paul called them mutilators of the flesh, not really the true circumcision. Number two, when Paul describes true believers as we who are the circumcision, he is indicating that the physical practice is required for believers today. False. We're just of the circumcision in the sense of the spiritual sense we have our hearts are circumcised, that is, we've been regenerated and so forth. Three, Paul claimed that his own background, resume, was superior to the Judaizers. True, remember he said, if if they can boast, I could boast even more because I was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, and so forth. Uh, Four, Jewish law required circumcision on the third day after birth false. It's the eighth day, right? Still true today for for Jews today. Uh, five, before his conversion to Christianity, Paul looked upon himself as a sinner before the law. Yeah, I'm thinking about that verse right there, you know, I mean, sure, In on one sense, Paul knew he was he was a sinner, but in a, in an outward sense, you remember, he says, in verse number uh, five. For as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. So he's, he's, he's looking at these outward indicators, and he's saying, if you just looked at me, I was an observant Jew. I kept the commandments as far as outwardly is concerned. Now, there's much more to being sinless than keeping things outwardly, isn't it? It's the inward, it's the heart that counts. But he's just saying... If you looked at me, I, I would appear to be faultless as far as I was an observant a Jew in that sense. All right, you did well on that. Maybe Santa will be good to you, you know, this year. Uh, we're looking at uh, chapter three, verse seven, and we're dealing with this section three one through four one, which is a warning against these false teachers. And we said these false teachers are called Judaizers because they were people who professed faith in Christ. But they, they said that not only is faith in Christ required, but you've also got to become like Jewish. You've got to keep the law, be circumcised, keep the Old Testament regulations. Paul sees that as, as heretical, as wrong, as contrary to the gospel. Remember, in the, the book of Galatians, he's very strong against that. He pronounces an anathema upon these people. And I entitled this section 3, 1 through 6 as Judaizers, as the context uh, for theology in the sense that these Judaizers allow Paul to, the, the heresy of the Judaizers allows Paul to teach the truth, you know. Truth is often taught when error comes about, and so we saw that Paul uh, warns about these Judaizers, and then in four through six we had this mock boasting, where Paul is saying, "If they're going to boast about their credentials, I can boast even more." Now we come to three seven through eleven, which I've entitled here, "The Essence of Pauline Theology" or the the essence of Paul's theology. In these verses. Paul summarizes the distinctives of his theology, of his system of belief about salvation. As verses four through six demonstrated, Paul had not been a failure in Judaism. I you mean, know, he, he, he boasted. He said, You know, I was above all my fellows. I was kind of the leading Jewish young rabbi of the day. He tells us that in Galatians. Nevertheless, even though he had this prominent position in Judaism. He came to view his previous successes as spiritual bankruptcy. This leads Paul to describe his new theological position in concise statements that are both theological and personal. Paul speaks of, I'm going to say here, what we call the doctrine of justification in verse 9, sanctification in verse 10, and the hope of glorification in verse 11. So, these verses uh, they, they sort of explain these three sort of essential doctrines. We could remember we talked about salvation is the broader term, and we look we can look at salvation in uh, in a broad sense, and salvation has a past aspect and a present aspect and a future aspect. So remember we talked about earlier in the class how that in the New Testament you can find the word saved used in the past tense in the New Testament, in the present tense, and in the future tense. That is, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That's because... There are some aspects of the doctrine of salvation that are past, there are some that are still going on now, and there's some that are future. So like this one justification, that's past. Uh, regeneration. We have been born again. That's not repeated. That's not an ongoing experience. So justification, Regeneration. We could talk about redemption. So some of these some of these uh, uh, parts of salvation are experiential, and some are non-experiential. Some are experiential, and some are non-experiential. What do I mean by that? This is what we call a non-experiential. And this one is an experiential. By experiential, I mean I experience it in my soul. It changes me. It makes me different. By non-experiential, I mean it doesn't actually change my soul. It is a judicial or positional thing. So justification here is a judicial, a legal, or positional. So it's often compared to a court case. You know, if you go to court and you're accused of some crime, you're accused of a crime, and you go to court and the judge says you're not guilty, well, nothing really changed about you. You may be, you know, he he just declared something legally. You're not guilty. He didn't change the person inside of you. In other words... Someone may actually commit a murder, and they may go to court, and they may get a rendering of not guilty. It didn't change them. They're still <laughs> the murderer that they always were. It doesn't really change. So many of the things that we experience in salvation have sort of a legal idea, a judicial idea. They're, they're not something that changes our soul. They're very important to us. Other things, like regeneration, being born again, actually change us. When we're regenerated, born again, we get a new nature. We are act- our souls are changed. Before, we had a disposition. We hated God. We were running away from God. We didn't love God. And being born again, regenerated, changes us and causes us to have new desires and new motives. We, we desire to know God now and so forth. That's an actual change. So some of these things are experiential, some are non-experiential, some are past, some are present or future. And so sanctification that we'll talk about here is all three. It's both past, it's also present, that's the aspect we talk about most of the time. And there's also a future aspect of sanctification, It actually has a technical name. It's called glorification. So we... uh, Sanctification means we are made holy. We are being made holy. We're being made holy. Uh, Sin is being removed from us. Sin is being... uh, We're being delivered from sin. So there's a past aspect... When we are first saved, we are the power of sin is broken in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. There's a present aspect of sanctification. We are being made holy. We are growing. We're becoming spiritually mature, and one day we'll be completely free from the power of sin. And that will be will be glorified and so forth. Sometimes words show up in both places. Here's redemption. Redemption means to purchase. To purchase a slave it has it 's the idea and the, the Greek word has the idea of purchasing at the slave market and so Paul talks about we 've been redeemed we we were like slaves to sin, and now God in Christ through the sacrifice of Christ we 're no longer slaves to sin we 've been redeemed but Paul can also use this term over here in Roman eight, Romans eight he talks about The redemption of our bodies. So he talks about a past aspect, redemption of our souls, you might say. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased by Christ. But, you know, our bodies have not been changed. And so he'll talk about in Romans 8, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which is really the same thing as this. It's just glorification. It's just a different way of speaking about that. So... We have past, present, and future aspects, and we're going to look at three, those three aspects here. We're going to look at justification here, present sanctification, and future glorification. Those are the three that Paul's going to talk about here in this passage right here, as he is at the same time combating this heresy. He's going to teach us as he is combating this heresy. Well, first of all, he begins by talking about spiritual bankruptcy. Because remember, he had been talking about his his excelling in Judaism and so forth. He says, verse seven, but in spite of that great resume I had, I was a leading rabbi in Judaism. There, that you know, I, I, I was faultless before the law. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I say, through his conversion on the Damascus road, Paul had come to count the privileges and achievements of verses 5 and 6 as liabilities because of Christ. He had once regarded those things, those things he achieved in Judaism, as important things towards achieving a righteous life, of living a good life by the law. And this is what the most religious people in our world are doing today. Why, do people, why are people in monasteries in place? Why are, why are there monks in monasteries? Why are there Tibetan monks up in the hills up there meditating and doing all that? Because they want to get to God. <laughs> and they're trying to be righteous. They're trying to do these acts. They're giving up the world. They're doing all these things. This is what Paul was doing. He thought by doing these things, he was achieving some sort of righteousness and therefore God would accept him. And that's what, as I say, all of our friends, are unsafe friends, that's what they think. If they think about God and they think about going to heaven, they think it's going to be because, well, I've done enough. I've done enough good things. I haven't been that bad, you know, and, and so forth. And I've achieved a certain amount of righteousness. But you may know many friends in, in religious situations who are very, we say, we say they're very devout. <laughs> and what that means when we say they're very devout is they're just very religious and they're really absorbed in this and they're trying to do all the good works they can to make themselves acceptable to God. But the problem, Paul says here, is they didn't really provide any true righteousness, it was kind of a false righteousness, a righteousness of his own making. He was trusting in his own human performance and he really failed to make any progress towards the kind of righteousness that God really requires. We, our mind comes to Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteous acts are like, you know, filthy rags, aren't they? So God doesn't look upon all these things that we do, that people try to do. To gain his approval as really being very helpful, being very useful they 're not sufficient why aren 't they? Because we are depraved creatures we are we, we are infected by sin, and everything we do is tainted by sin, so even those even 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 when people try to do good things they 're doing them for their own for their own pride and their own self motivation They're not really doing them to the glory of God. Everything is tainted by sin. Verse 8, what is more, he says, I consider everything a loss. All that stuff you went through, Paul, all that striving, all that Pharisaism, I consider everything a loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I say here, verse 8 begins with a very emphatic phrase, what is more? That makes it clear that Paul is, tends to reiterate or reinforce the point of verse 7 when he said, whatever was gained to me, all those accomplishments, I consider them lost. Well, now I'm going I'm I'm to tell you even more forceful terms. Let me be clearer here. I consider everything that I did in, re- in religious work and in, in trying to be a good person and all that trying to, f- trying to be a, a good Pharisee I consider them a loss they're just worthless so um, Paul is wants the Philippians to know that he does not regret the decision that he made there on the Damascus Road in the past he said whatever were gains to me I now consider loss and, and I still consider them what is more, even today I consider everything a loss. Um, so, um, Paul is very clear that these, uh, every one of these privileges and achievements that he, that he, uh, that he did in his life were, were worthless. They were nothing. Uh, they were lost. They were worthless. And here he calls them garbage or dung the lowest scum, you know. They were just nothing. These things that Paul had benefited him as, had benefiting him and were, were, were in reality working to destroy him because they were binding him to his, they, they were blinding Paul to his real need for righteousness. That's the problem with a person who's very religious. They're so religious, they're so caught up in their good works, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to see that they have a need, that they really have a problem, you know. They they just can't see that. And Paul says, that's why I think they were worthless because they really blinded me to Christ and my need of Christ and the righteousness of Christ that, that I would get and in, that would be imputed to me, as we'll talk about. Our brother over here last time, when we were talking about this, his, his mind came to Martin Luther and... Uh, uh, my mind goes to Martin Luther, too, here, as I, as I think about what Paul is saying here. I don't know if you're familiar with Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the man that we, 1517, um, uh, 500 years ago, a little over now, we credit him with starting starting the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was born in what we think of as Germany, and he, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. And he went to school, and he studied, and so forth. He didn't have any great desire for it, but that's what he was doing. And you have to remember the, the superstition. People were still superstitious, but people were very superstitious in that day. And he was religious in a sense, but he was in a thunderstorm, according to his own account, one day, at a lightning storm, and he got very scared. And he said, you know how people make... Thanks God, if you'll just get me out of this jam, <laughs> if you'll just get me out of this one, I'll never do that again. You know, I'll, I'll never smoke another cigarette. If you just get me out of this or I'll, I'll never do that evil thing. If you'll just get me out of this one, Lord, you know, this time, this time you'll get me out. Well, that's what Luther did. He said, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this lightning store, I'll become a monk. I'll, I'll devote myself to God and I'll become a monk. Well, he, he, he did that just on the spur of the moment, but he, he felt obligated to uphold that. And so he joined an Augustinian monastery. Uh, there were various kinds of monks and, and brothers and so forth during the Middle Ages. You know, this is in the late, uh, late 1400s. And uh, he joins this Augustinian minister, Augustinian minister uh, monastery. So he begins to study. He goes to school to learn how to become a priest and a monk and so forth. And he's very smart, he's a very smart guy, and he gets a master's degree, he gets a doctor's degree in theology. And so he begins to teach in the university there. He's teaching this stuff, you know. But he still, you know, he can't he can't really get any real satisfaction. He just can't he takes a trip to Rome and he walks to Via de la Rosa there and he he's upset with the corruption he sees in Rome that's going on there, the wealth and so forth. He just can't He just can't, you know, get any satisfaction. He doesn't have any peace in his heart. And so, you know, in 1517, he posts these 95 theses, you know, on uh, Halloween, you know, on the door there of the church at uh, the church in Wittenberg because he's upset with some of the abuses in the church and so forth that we just celebrated a few weeks ago and so on. But then... As he's studying and he's reading scripture, he's actually teaching the Psalms and he's teaching Romans and this kind of stuff. Uh, His name comes up here because his life seems to parallel Paul quite a bit, a very religious person who is pursuing God, being very religious. But what what helped Luther was this talk about righteousness, real righteousness. I thought I'd read you here a little bit about Luther's conversion. Here's what he says. He wrote this in July of 1519. This is, this is when he began to see the light and his conversion took place. He said, Meanwhile, I had already during that year, that's the year 1519, uh, returned to interpret the Psalter anew, the Psalms. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. So he had lectured all these, but it still hadn't quite clicked yet, you know. I had indeed been captivated with the extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. Remember, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. Everyone believes Jew first and also the Greek. For therein, verse 17, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That is written justly by faith. So he's thinking about that phrase. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. And that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be right with God. How do you be right with God? And he's saying here... I was thinking about that in the righteousness of God revealed that stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. So he thought that... Um, when the Bible, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, that you, he's talking about doing right things, be, doing works, doing good works. And that's how he understood it. To be righteous, I've got to do righteous acts and so forth. This active sense. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. Now, see, that kind of parallels Paul here. Faultless before the law, Paul says. I was faultless before the law, but Paul's not telling us about his inner turmoil, turmoil, turmoil there. He's just telling us outwardly. He says, "I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. That is, he was doing all these things, beating his body, doing all the requirements of the Roman Catholic Church, and he, he didn't, couldn't get any satisfaction, you know? You go to mass, you go to confession, but it really didn't bring him much satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuringly, greatly I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by the very kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience, nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. He, so he's saying, "I'm thinking about Romans one i I'm trying to figure what is that about." At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely. In it is the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He through faith is righteous shall live. He through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which, by which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. He, through, through, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and it entered the paradise itself through open gates. There a, totally, a, there a totality, uh, other f- face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an anthology as the work of God. That is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Later I read Augustine's The Letter in the Spirit, where contrary to hope I found that he too interpreted God's righteousness in a similar way as the righteousness which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although this was hitherto said imperfectly and he did not explain all the things containing certain, uh, concerning imputation clearly, it nevertheless was pleasing that God's righteousness with which we are justified was taught. So it's, it's interesting that here's Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he had a very similar experience to the apostle Paul. He was seeking to please God by his own righteous efforts and he found that Basically, this can only come through faith in Christ and not our own works. I say in the next paragraph there, Paul expresses the purpose of his conversion with the final clause, that I may gain Christ. This is kind of the same thought that you know, we, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. What profit will a man have if he gains the whole world and suffers the loss of his soul? That's sort of Paul's own experience was a dramatic illustration of this truth taught by the Lord. I say then next, for Paul, the knowledge of Christ and his Lord meant the intimate communion with Christ that began his conversion and had been experienced and and had and had been his experience all the years since then. It's not limited to the past. He's going to say in verse 10, I want to know Christ. It's a growing relationship when he's when he says here that I may gain Christ. It's gaining Christ, but it's not a one-time thing, as we're going to see. It's a growing kind of relationship. He'll say, I want to know Christ. So, um, although Paul was regenerate, Luther got regenerate. That was just the beginning of his experience. Well, then let's look at 3, 9 through 11, spiritual wealth. Verses 7 and 8 focus on the lost side of the equation, what Paul gave up. Whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss. I consider everything but loss. There Paul asserted that his previous achievements had yielded spiritual bankruptcy. Even though he had done all these things, he was still bankrupt spiritually before God. He was not accepted before God. Now in verses 9 through 11, he focuses exclusively on the positive side. What he is standing to gain. Paul will explain what it means to gain Christ. Remember in verse... 80. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, may be saved, in other words. Well, the first one is verse 9, and I, I just labeled that. I think Paul is telling us here about what we, what, doct, what we would say doctrinally is the doctrine of justification. We'll see how that is. He says, I want to gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I say here, the verb to be found, along with its participial modifier, not having a righteousness of my own, elaborates what it means to gain Christ. Christ. So Paul is saying, "I want to be found in him not and not found to be depending upon my own good works and my own righteous acts. I want to be found in christ, I want to be scrutinized by God to be shown that I am in union with Christ, and that I am depending upon not my own righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, in other words." everybody's righteousness who is not a Christian is a righteousness that depends upon some moral code they're trying to keep. They're doing this, they're doing that, they're living up to this, they're trying to live up to some moral code. It's a righteousness based on the law. Luther was trying to do that, living up to some moral code that the Roman Catholic Church had. Paul was trying to lead up, live up to the moral code of the Old Testament and so forth. And that's a a self-righteousness, he's saying. Not having a righteousness which is my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. So here's the strong contrast. But to be found in Christ requires a righteousness that has its source not in us, but in God. Paul is speaking here of what's called imputed righteousness. Remember the word justify... justify the verb here is in greek um dikaiō the the verb justify the the word the word uh, the word righteous is uh the same word really just the noun So in Greek, the word justify and the word righteous, they're really the same word group. We have different words here. We talk about justify. Justify, when we say, what does justification mean? Justify, when we say we're justified, it means we are declared righteous. We are declared righteous. It's a legal thing. Remember, when we go into the court and you're up for trial, and they present the evidence and so forth, and they say not guilty. The judge declares, "You're not guilty. You're declared righteous." Now, you're not righteous internally. It doesn't say it doesn't uh, change your, your 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 actual experience. It doesn't make you a different person. But as far as the law is concerned, you're righteous. You can walk out of that courtroom. Well, that's what we're talking about here in justification. In justification, this is. This is a non-experiential. This is a legal thing. One of the benefits of salvation is that now we are declared righteous. Theologians use this term imputed righteousness. This righteousness that we're talking about is imputed to us. It's credited to us. We're not made righteous. We are are credited with righteousness. Righteousness is imputed to us. Now, God wants us to be righteous, in fact. He wants us to be holy, that's true, but that's not what this doctrine is. See? Being made holy, that's over here, that's sanctification. God wants us to be holy, He wants us to be righteous. But if we depend upon our ability to be righteous to get into heaven, we'll never get there, you see? What gets us into heaven is right here justification righteousness is imputed to us not our righteousness but somebody else's righteousness the righteousness of christ so christ the perfect man god man who died on the cross for our sins brought us forgiveness god imputes his righteousness to us we are united with christ um re- Luther called this alien righteousness. And theologians use that term today. The righteousness we're talking about here is alien. Alien is something, it's it's foreign, isn't it? It doesn't, it's not ours. (laughs) It's alien to us. So this righteousness in justification is alien righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. God in his grace, when we accept Christ and trust Christ, one of the things he does is justifies. He declares us righteous. He declares in a legal sense that we're righteous because the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. That's why we're going to heaven. That's why we can get into heaven. That's why we're accepted by God. So Paul gave up his own efforts towards becoming righteousness through the law. Instead, he was looking outside of himself, as Luther said, looking outside of myself, to another righteousness, an alien righteousness, not my own. That's what Luther finally discovered. He finally, when he was reading Romans and understood what that said for therein is a way to be right with God. Therein is the righteousness of God. In the gospel is this righteousness revealed. It's revealed by faith, by trusting Christ. This righteousness is imputed to us. I say in the next paragraph, This righteousness is received through faith in Christ. In summary then, Paul asserts that true righteousness is obtained by abandoning one's own efforts and exercising faith. So faith is the opposite of seeking to establish one's own righteousness. Not having a righteousness from the law. Not trying to establish my own righteousness. That's what everybody's trying to do out there who's trying to get to God. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. So faith is the act of counting everything but loss. When we come to true faith in Christ, we realize, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm in a helpless state and I can't really do anything to save myself. I have to just throw myself on God, on the mercy of God and trust him. That's, that's true salvation, and that's justification that Paul is talking about here is not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes from God, it's a gift, it's imputed, it's credited, this justifying righteousness. Well, then we come to verse 10, sanctification. Paul goes on, he's discussing true theology. The reason he's doing this is because these Judaizers are saying, no, you, r- true justification is not, not a legal thing. It's not you're declared righteous. You're, you have to be made righteous. Now, this is what our Roman Catholic friends teach. They deny what I just taught. All Roman Catholic doctrine denies that justification is a legal declaration. They don't believe that. They denied that since the Reformation. That's what got Luther into trouble. That's that's what caused the split with the Protestants and Roman Catholics, was this doctrine right here. They said, no, justification, if you're going to be right with God, you've got to be made righteous. That's why when you leave here as a Roman Catholic, you can't go straight to heaven because there's no Roman Catholic. Even the Pope is not perfectly righteous. He's going to have to go to purgatory for a while and have sins removed until he becomes righteous enough to get into heaven. Then he can get in once he is made righteous. So it's not really depending upon Christ at all, totally. It's depending upon my own righteousness, what I do, my good works, and so forth. The Roman Catholic Church teaches explicitly. It's faith plus works. After Luther had his Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had a council called the Council of Trent. They passed an anathema on Luther and they passed an anathema on Protestants who taught justification by faith, justification by faith alone. They don't believe by faith alone. It's faith plus work. This is what they absolutely believe to this very day. Now, sanctification, verse 10. And I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection And the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I say this verse should probably be viewed as an expansion of the earlier phrase in verse 8. There's a passing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So from the moment of this conversion, remember on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, Paul had come to know the risen Lord, an exalted Lord. But he found in Christ an inexhaustible fullness of knowledge. There was always more to know. In other words, this is not the kind of language that we use today. We ask people, Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? We use the word know in the sense of a past sense. Have you do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know Christ? Have you been justified? Have you been regenerated? But there's still more knowing to be to be done here, isn't there? Paul says. Even as a Christian, I want to know Christ more, more fully. We all recognize that. We don't know everything when we get born again. There's a lot more to know. That's what spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and that's what that's where this doctrine comes, sanctification or spiritual growth, growing in holiness. Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, participation in the suffering, becoming like him in death. I say here, Paul appears to define knowing Christ as the believers experiencing of Christ's own death and resurrection. Paul wants to experientially know the power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, Paul emphasizes this quite a bit in Romans chapter 6, where he talks quite a bit about sanctification. In Romans 6, for instance, in verse 4, Paul says there, Um, uh, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So here in Romans 6, Paul says that what happened to us in salvation is that we were born again, we were changed, and we began to experience this power of Christ. The power of Christ came into our lives, and it begins to work to defeat sin in our lives. The power of sin is broken. We're still sinners, (laughs) We still have to struggle with sin. We still have to uh, say no to sin and so forth. But how do we do that? Well, we do it through the power of Christ that lives within us, the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives within us through the Spirit who gives us power, that is, the ability to overcome sinful sinful uh, sinful desires, sinful dispositions, and so forth. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This is a transforming power. Paul commonly talks about this transforming power that we have in our lives that enables us to please God, serve Him, grow, mature, become holy, become less sinful. Remember that famous verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all... Who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. So, the process of spiritual growth, of sanctification, is we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul looks upon this sanctification as a transformation. That's what he means when he says, I want to know him. That is, I want to know him more. I want to grow spiritually. I want to know this power to overcome sin, to serve Christ. I want to experience this on a daily basis. I say in the last paragraph here, growth and transformation, however, are not to be had without pain. Remember, Paul reminded the Philippians earlier in 127-30 about the struggle, the conflict, and the sufferings that characterize the Christian citizen. And in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, we talked about that, where he underlined the shameful death with which our Lord had to submit himself. You Remember, he became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Well, here Paul uh, says that I even have to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So part of being a Christian, part of this sanctifying process, part of this spiritual growth, is participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Now, actually, we don't really participate in his sufferings in the sense that we don't, we're not on the cross. He suffered on the cross once for all. Those sufferings are over. But if we identify with Christ, we are going to experience a measure of the kinds of afflictions that he himself uh, suffered. Uh, There's a passage in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, and this is Paul's conversion, you remember, there uh, in Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, when we're talking about Paul's conversion, Paul is on the road to Damascus, and it says in verse 3, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Verse 4 He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Paul asked. Well, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, did Paul ever persecute Jesus? Not really. I mean, (laughs) he never, as far as we know, he never persecuted Jesus in person. He, He, you know, he... How did he persecute Jesus? Well, he was persecuting the church. Remember, that's the whole point here. I hope, remember, Paul says that my goal in life was to destroy the church, he says earlier here. Remember, I was, I was the leading rabbi. I was going around trying to... I put Stephen to death. I got him killed. And I was going through Damascus trying to uh, kill other Christians here. I was persecuting as many as I can. But Christ says to him, Paul, you're persecuting me. So the point I'm saying is to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Christ is identified with his church in such a way that if we identify with Christ, we are going to incur a measure of Christ's afflictions. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, through my sufferings, through my difficulties and hardships on these missionary journeys, through my imprisonments, I am sharing in his suffering in that sense. In this hostile world, because of my allegiance to Christ, um, remember he said in Philippians one nine, Paul says earlier in Philippians one, to you it is, to you it has been graciously given not only to believe on Christ but also to suffer for His sake. You remember he said that. Matthew sixteen twenty four. If anyone comes after me, Jesus said he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the point that I'm making here or Paul is making here in this sanctifying experience is I want to know Christ and that gives me spiritual power to live a holy life, to overcome sin in my life, to please God, but it also means I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to suffer. I say in the last, becoming like him in his death further elaborates the previous phrase. For a believer to share in Christ's suffering involves such a complete identification that it's it's like a death to a former life. That former life is gone. We read that in Romans chapter 6. Paul talks about that a lot. So the process of sanctification is intended to bring our present state into ever-increasing conformity to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I want to know Christ I want to be brought into conformity with the life of Christ. I want to be like him. And Paul talks about that constantly. That's what we're talking about with spiritual growth, with sanctification, bringing my life into conformity with Christ. And then this last aspect in verse 11, I've just called it glorification because that's sort of what he's talking about here, the last aspect. Verse 11, and so after this, somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. That's the ultimate thing that we're looking forward to one day is the resurrection of the body, the resurrection from the dead. I say verse 11 is linked with verse 10 and that it sets forth the resurrection as the goal that gives meaning to Paul's suffering. We suffer now, but we're going to, Paul says, and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. I say this idea is also expressed in Romans 8, 17. We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So the resurrection represented for Paul the culmination. It is the culmination, isn't it? Of our spiritual uh, pilgrimage. I say here, a serious problem is raised, however, by the apparent tentativeness of Paul's language somehow to obtain. That doesn't sound exactly right for Paul to say. And so, I want to know Christ and somehow I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Because elsewhere when we read the apostle Paul, he speaks about his future hope with great assurance. He talks quite confidently about that. We already, you know, read it earlier In uh, Philippians chapter 1 um, and verse uh, 23, for instance, uh, Paul says, um, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He seems, you know, quite confident there. Convinced of this, you know, I'm convinced of this kind of thing. We think of, you know, well-known passages where he speaks quite confidently like, oh, you know, Romans chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, where he is very, he's speaking about glorification there and he's very confident, very assured. He says, "What, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it then who condemns? No. Christ it is to Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall hardship or persecutions or famine? No, nothing. No, and all these things were more than conquerors. I'm convinced that neither life nor death or angels, demons, or powers shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I know whom I believe. You know, I've you know I've committed myself to him. But there are other passages where Paul has this sort of note of, of self distrust. For instance, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 27, remember this, Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So we have to distinguish in our own minds between what we might say is the firm, unmovable object of our hope, which is Christ, and our subjective apprehension of that hope. The the Apostle Paul, in spite of his maturity, he was not omniscient. (laughs) He didn't know everything, and he was not sinless. Uh, He had a healthy concern for what we call his own perseverance. Remember, we talked about perseverance. We believe in eternal security. We believe that if a person is truly regenerate, truly born again, they are secure, but we also believe that uh, it's necessary for a Christian to continue in faith and good works. It's 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 a result, a fruit of being really born again. A person can't just say, uh, "Well, I trusted Christ 50 years ago and I've lived as a reprobate, but I'm going to heaven." You know, that's that's not a very that's not a very confident. You know, can we be confident that that person's life has been changed? They may say that, but we don't see any sanctification here. That's a fruit of that justification. There's the problem, isn't it? And so even the great apostle Paul had a healthy sense of his own need to persevere. I mean, I can say, I mean, I can say on, on the one hand, I'm, I'm confident I'm going to heaven. I'm confident that I'm born again. I have assurance of my salvation. But on the other hand. You know, I have a healthy knowledge of my own sinfulness and I know that I must persevere and I will persevere if I'm truly elect, if, I, if I've been born again. And so I, I know that I just can't say, Chuck, all this and I'm going to go out, eat, drink and be merry. I, I can't do it because God is in me. But if I did do it, it's not a good sign, is it? You know, so there is this tension between sovereignty and responsibility. God is sovereign. sovereign. He he keeps his children, but at the same time, he keeps us through faith. It's through faith. We have to continue in faith. We don't give up believing if we're truly regenerate. So Paul here is just expressing here, this, I think, this healthy balance. I say here, therefore, on the one hand, we should not minimize the note of self-distrust present in the passage, yet at the same time, we must not generalize from it and deduce that Paul did not enjoy assurance of salvation a fact that seems clear from the many other passages as well as the whole tenor of his teaching. He expected the Philippians to share in this assurance that he had, but he's saying there's a sense in which we all look forward to and hope for the resurrection of the dead. We hope because we trust in Christ. We hope because we're seeking to persevere and continue in the faith. So these are just healthy concerns, I think, that Paul is expressing at this point. Okay, what time is it? Well, it's, I'd say it's about that time. So why don't we stop here for this week, and we'll pick it up right here. Uh, what's today? The, the 13th? eleven-thirteen. So we have one more week before Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, next week we do meet, and then I think the next week we're off for Thanksgiving. All right? Lord bless, and we'll see you, Lord willing, next week.